Go for a walk with the poet Ian McMillan and you sign up to something that he calls Ian Truth. Stories that may be true but possibly aren't, but might be, but who cares because Ian Truth makes everything funnier and kinder. He'll make you laugh so that your face turns to jelly in a wind tunnel, out of control with the sheer ridiculous hilarity of it all. And odd things happen, as you'll see. Well, here we are in uh, the churchyard of Darfield All Saints Church. There was a period when I was a lad in the 60s when the church clock started to slow down and it made strange noises. And all these fantastic rumours went round here. People coming out of the cross keys were saying, it's a giant owl, there's a giant owl in the tower and it comes out and it picks children up and takes them away. And, they're going, and it gets more exaggerated, they go, yeah, picked up a babby, picked a babby up <laughs> and flew off with this babby. And, and so then you get people coming out of cross keys and standing here watching. Then there are other rumours like, there was a, what was his name, the Harry somebody, who was like a murderer who escaped. He's Harry, Harry so-and-so, he's hiding up there. A walk with Ian has to start and end in the village of Darfield, because why go anywhere else? He's lived here for 66 of his 66 years, after all. And although he tries to deny it, he seems to know everyone we bump into, including Steve, the champion chucker of Yorkshire puddings into a flat cap, who you'll meet later. The walk begins by the grave where the young Ian first met poetry. Here lieth the mortal remains of Robert Millthorpe, who died September the 13th, 1826, aged 19 years. He lost his life by inadvertently throwing this stone upon himself whilst in the service of Jasper Raywood of Ardsley, who erected it to his memory. I love that story. So here's this lad, and he's, un he's unloading this very stone, and it flattens him, <laughs> and so the gaffer goes, bury him under it. It's just, then a poem. Alas, how frail this brittle clay, though formed with matchless art, death waits in ambush for his prey, and none escapes his dart. A youthful frolic promised on, whilst the grim tyrant gave the mortal stroke by this same stone that marks my early grave. That's one of the, that's a, you know, an early, an early poem that I saw when I went to Sunday school. You know, you come out and you read that, and you think, gosh, that's a poem, that is a poem. So this place, I've always lived in Darfield, and this place has always been my kind of omphalos, as uh, Seamus Heaney calls it. And if we wander down here, we'll find the grave of the other Ban a Darfield poet, uh, Ebenezer Elliot, the Corn Law Rhymer, who was an anti-Corn Law Rhymer in the 19th century, and he's buried down here. And the story is that John Betjeman, for some reason, turned up here. I don't know if it's true or not. He turned up, and people have been chipping, fans, apparently, have been chipping bits off Ebenezer Elliot's grave. So, the story is, whether it's true or not, I like to think it is, the story is that then John Betjeman put his hand in his pocket and paid to have some railings so that he can't chip the thing off. And it's just a, another, another beautiful tale. Beautiful story. And a bit like the stories that you tell in your poetry and in your prose, it sort of doesn't matter if it isn't true. No, it it's good enough that it's a good story. Exactly. I mean, my, my parents met as pen pals. My dad was in the Navy. My mum was in the WAFs. My dad was from Scotland, Carn Waff, near Lanark. My mum was from Great Oulton, the next village to here. And they were both in the war. And they had this thing where single service people can write to each other. And so they did. And they 
and that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm a writer because they met through writing and they write to each other and they only met three times before they got married because it was the war. I mean, they kept telling me for afternoon tea in the Queen's Hotel in Leeds. My dad would land in Plymouth, get the train up. She was stationed at RAF Blackbrook near Wigan. She'd get the train across, they'd miss each other. So then they got, they got married on a 48 hour pass. And my dad sent this telegram to my wife, my mother, I mean, saying, get leave now. And my mother sent this telegram back saying, cannot get leave. And my dad sent another telegram, get leave now. Meanwhile, he's on the train up to Peebles where they're going to get married. My mum then has to climb over the fence. And I said to her, how did you get over the fence without them seeing you? And she went, Elsie distracted the sergeant. Which is one of my <laughs> favourite lines of hers. Anyway, so then they get married. They have one night together in Tontine Hotel, Peebles. My mother gets off at the wrong station in Peebles. There were three of them in 1943. She's running up the main street of Peebles in her waffa. Her hat falls off. A man throws it to her. She catches it. My dad stood at the top of the steps with a bolt of Chinese silk under his arm that he brought back from Shanghai that his sister was going to make into a wedding dress. And, 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 and that was the tale. So when my dad left the Navy in 1958, he went to work in a firm, an office in Sheffield. And they'd call and tell that story again every night. My dad would come home, my mum would put some pearls on. They'd just tell the story. And after a bit, I realised quite a lot of it was made up. You know, they, they did get married on a 48 hour pass. That is true. But I don't think she ran up the main street and her hat fell off and a bloke threw it and she thought it. And I don't think he was stood there with a boat at you. And that's why, that, you're right, my stories, they have a kind of, uh, I suppose you call it Ian truth rather than truth. And we all do that, don't we? We all exaggerate. And that's the great thing about stories. You know, they don't have to be true. When I'm doing a writing workshop and I'll say to somebody, you could maybe move that line of that poem and describe that thing down there. They went, well, no, because that's how it happened. It happened in that order. And I say, yes, but you can move it. Nobody will tell you off. You know, you won't get told off. So, we're now approaching the grave of uh, Ebenezer Elliot, the Cornwall Rhymer. <laughs> <laughs> this churchyard was, was overgrown, really overgrown. Then there's this indefatigable gang called the Friends of Darfield Churchyard who just come round and chop at it, you know, volunteers chopping away and finding all kinds of things, all kinds of graves of all kinds of people. But the, the star attraction for me is always uh, Ebenezer. Ebenezer Elliot. Another example, you know, of a poet who lived round here. He was from Rotherham, not far away. I wrote a lot of his stuff in Rotherham. So here he is. And the, what I like about it is, it's bare. It's not like the fellow who pulled the stone upon himself. There's no actual evidence that he's a poet. So, Ebenezer Elliot died December the 1st, 1849, aged 68 years. That's it. I kind of like that anonymity of it. You know, if you didn't know he was a poet, you'd have to find out. If you didn't know, he's just old Ebenezer. Looking across the, this is like the Dern Valley, uh, which was a hugely industrial place when I was a young man. And, and now it's greened, you know, which is great. It's become green again. And you realise that the pit, which was such a dominant thing up until the late 80s, early 90s, the last pit round here shut, 1993, it's kind of a blip in history, isn't it? You know, that it was nothing much happened for years. People scrabbled over a turnip, you know, and then they found coal, and then a lot of people came here from all over the place, and it was a boom town, and the coal went, and then, you know, we're back to being this, this greenish, greenish area. And there's something funny about that, isn't there? Because I bet growing up in Darfield, <clears> you <throat> thought that the pit would be here forever. Well, you did, you did. I, I, I often tell the story about, um, we had to write an essay at junior school, Darfield in the year 2000, and it said, we will wear silver space suits, 
we will eat our dinner in tube form, like toothpaste, and we will go to the pit on a silver monorail. Other things might change, you might wear a silver space suit, but the pit would always be there. I mean, it was always going to be there, you know. And we, we used, to, they used to come round to the school with the, the NCB would have these films, NCB recruiting films, King Cole, and we had to watch them at Low Valley Primary down here, and we didn't have a screen to watch it on. So we always ended up, for some reason, watching it in the cloak room. So it was like some kind of avant-garde film festival because you're sitting there watching this film and it's on pegs. So like there's pegs coming out of miners' faces because the claws pegs, because you're watching it in the claw room for some weird reason. Look, just as we speak, that branch is falling off. Oh! I promise you I've not set this up, but that branch, for some reason... It's going to go. Perhaps we'd better not stand under it. We might be like, what's his name of Ardsley? was flattened. <laughs> We'd be flattened in the course of our work. But it'd be a good story, not wouldn't half. it? We could embroider it's it. It's almost worth it, Ian. I think it is. Do you know, I think <laughs> Should we just go and stand near it? We'll stand near it. Let's go stand near it. So, the... Now, I'm not very good with trees. Do you know what kind of tree this is? I don't. Oh, heck. I've not got the right specs on for is a start. A, I don't know. Is it a beech? It's just it? a big one. It is. So if we, we don't want to stand too close. But I could hear, I could hear it. Oh, well, I thought it was a wild squirrel population I, I thought it was ravaging the trees, but... Messing about, but... I suppose, because <laughs> it's a very hot day, maybe it started to dry out or something. I have to tell my sister-in-law, who's in one of the friends <laughs> of Darfield Church, yeah. Goodness me. Where, <clears> where's the, the snapping point? I, I think trying to, Oh, it's up there. Oh, up there, blimey. So, when it goes, it'll go. I want Fine. it to go now, though. I want it to I go now. I think it'd be funny. It would. <laughs> and how can we make it go? <laughs> we have to call on the ghost of Ebenezer. Ebenezer. It stopped for a bit, I think, as we walk away. It's having a sulk now because we're watching. <laughs> so this is, years ago, this bit wouldn't have been as overgrown, so it would have looked over the valley. And down there where there's some water, because Darfield means something like field near a stream or deer field near a stream there's all these rumors of this uh, Roman villa down here somewhere and old Mr Marsden the next street to me used to go oh, there's a Roman villa kid and people kind of half believed it and then John Fletcher the Egyptologist who comes from Barnsley said well it could be you know there could be something down here because they discovered a huge hall of Roman coins when they were building a new estate in 1948 on a place called Quern, they now call it Quern Way because the Quern was what they found the coins in. So it would have been, and there were hundreds of these coins. So this would have been an important Roman passing place. So it's not inconceivable there might have been this. And that's what makes you feel good about living here. You know, that you're walking in history all the time. It's a great place for a poet, I've got to tell you, because you walk around all the time, trees fall on your head, you know, <laughs> you find these graves. It's, it's amazing, it really is. Darfield's got everything. The, the so coins, far. you know, they remind me of that section in your latest book, My Sand Life, My Pebble Life. Mm. <laughs> he was a child deciding that actually he'll just go to the shop on holiday oh, with some cardboard, cardboard coins. Yeah. I, I did, I, I'd, read, I'd read that, what it was, I think I'd read in a magazine that they had cardboard currency on the Isle of Man. And then there was this footnote that said not much of this money survives today, obviously. And I thought, well, all right, if I, make some, if I make some cardboard coins, I can try and spend them in WH Smith's in Flandidno. And it's one of those great ideas. We've all had them, where you think, that's a great idea until the moment of truth, where you have to go in the shop and get your beano <laughs> and try and pay for it with a cardboard thing that you've cut out from an Easter egg packet. And 
It was one of those moments where you realise, it happens to me all the time, that not everybody lives in the same kind of fantasy world that I do. So in my world, the fellow would have gone, yeah, do you want, I can't remember Fair what enough. I called him, there was, I called him something, but there was, do you want change of that? We got some change. And, but <laughs> he just went and looked at it and you think, oh yeah, I realise now, it's, not, it's daft. Maybe that's why, you know, you end up writing things because when you write things, you know, that you can live that life where in this fantasy world, somebody would have accepted your cardboard money. <laughs> oh dear. Just like, and in the book I talk about it being like when I went to see Pink Floyd at Sheffield City Hall and my friend didn't have a ticket, but he thought, he said if he wrote the words Pink Floyd ticket on the back of a Kit Kat wrapper, they'd let him in because it was 1970 and it was, they just had the Paris riots in 1968 and so the world was changing. He thought I'd be fine. These officials at Sheffield City Hall will let me in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe that's what my life has been. My life's always been like a construct of trying to Trying to pay for things with cardboard money, <laughs> metaphorically, I suppose. <clears throat> but I have always been a big walker. I, I remember as a, as a young man, my mother would talk, tell the story of me saying, right, I'm going in the garden to think. And I'll put my anorak on and put my hood up and walk around the garden in a circle. Because it's always been an aid to thought for me. It's always been an aid to getting the rhythm of whatever you're thinking going. And partly it is a rhythmic thing, you know, because you're you're taking your rhythm. I, I'm a big believer in you know, the rhythm of the sun coming up and the sun going down and birth and death and all that and the seasons, your heartbeat and just the rhythm of walking. So every morning, as people who follow me on Twitter will know, I wake up at half past four. I wish I didn't. Click. There's my eyes opening at half past four. I go downstairs. I get dressed. I try not to wake my wife up. She thinks I'm ridiculous getting up at that time. <laughs> uh, I then go out of the house, go for my early stroll, walk round Darfield. Back in the house about 10 past six. And I tweet about it. I tweet five things that I've seen. And I always try and see different things. And so my task is always to see something different on the stroll, despite the fact it's always the same thing. And every morning, I manage it. The best thing I ever saw, I often talk about it, was I saw a man in a high-vis jacket walking past a man in a camouflage jacket. And they cancelled each other out. And it was like a do-it-yourself eclipse. It was beautiful. <laughs> this fellow's going to heckle me now. All right? He's Darfield's other Guardian reader. If we go, to, we, go to, uh, we go to the shop, they get three guardians at the shop. And I'm there early, and I get the guardian. And then he gets the guardian. But then there's always one guardian left. And there the third guardian always lies, replaced each morning by the new third guardian that nobody buys. One of the best things about a walk with Ian is sitting down every now and again to hear another of his poems all of them read with the waving arms and facial gymnastics of the natural stand-up comic. And then there are the poem's names. I like an intriguing title. I think a title should always send you back into the book or the poem. So I call, I call it, yes, but what is this? What exactly? And that's an overhearing on a train where this chap, he was so wonderful. I never found out what it was, but he was sat on his own and he was mumbling to himself. And then he opened, this, he opened the bag and looked in this bag that he got, like a hold on. He went, yes, but what is this? What exactly? I thought, oh, thank you, my man. You know, because you can just listen in, can't you, all the time, just listen in. <laughs> and I, I, like, I like things that are in sequence. So this is just a little bit of a sequence. One, I snap my fingers at time, like it's a waiter approaching with soup. That's a little three-liner. And I just like the idea of me going, come on, time, come on, come here. Couldn't put my keys down because they were rattling. <laughs> keys of time. This 
The second one's a kind of fantasy. Two. Rootling down the back of the drawer, I found these diaries from years that haven't happened yet. Rootling round the back of the diaries, I found these drawings from evenings that haven't slipped by yet. Rootling around at the back of these years, I found diaries that haven't been opened yet. Rootling around at the back of these evenings, I find openings that haven't yet closed. And that just started, that's like an improvisation where I just started the idea of finding some diaries from years that haven't happened and just looking to see what, what I did. And then it just built from there. And that's often how I write these things. Improvisation, I like improvisation. Uh, when me and my mate Luke used to do a lot of gigs in village halls, the last thing we did in the second half was I got the audience to shout a couple of words out. He'd start playing something. We'd make up a song. And it was just ridiculously funny for me and them often. But improvising is interesting. So <clears throat> this is just something a fella, me probably, trying to improvise his day. Three. This bit of the day was improvised, but this bit of the day wasn't improvised. This bit of the day was completely improvised, but this bit of the day was only partly improvised. This bit of the day was improvised, but badly. This bit of the day was improvised, but well. This bit of the day was going to be improvised. This bit of the day wasn't going to be improvised. <laughs> oh dear. I like the poet W.S. Graham, the great Scottish poet, and he wrote a lot of stuff like that. But he wrote a great line that said, language, ah, now there you have me. <laughs> what are you on about language? I like a lot about language. Here's a chap I don't know with a dog. Yeah, I don't believe you. That's you do not know like, I don't know. Who oh, mind you, you don't like dogs. So I know, you, you don't I want to go and say hello, do you? I don't say hello to the dog. I hope the branch <laughs> falls on the dog. I'm, I'm allergic to dogs. If I go in out of the dog, I swell up like a balloon. Oh, so it's room. not just sheer terror? No, You're it's not terror. No, I'm, I, I don't mind them in the abstract. It's just... Uh, I'm allergic to them, dogs and cats. And it's funny because a lot of arty people have got dogs and cats. You know, so some you go to somebody's house or if you're doing a gig, you have to stay over somewhere. They say, I've got a cat. I say, well, I can't really stay at your house. And they go, I, I, I put the cat outside. And I swear you could have put the cat down in the <laughs> mid seventies. I could still tell you what breed of cat it is. Strange, you know, I like cats in the abstract. I like them, I like dogs in the abstract. But in real life, this isn't part of the point. Four, <laughs> hello time. Tell you what, you are like the fossil of a clown's last laugh. That was just this idea that time's having a laugh at us all the time, isn't it? You, we think, yeah, I feel quite fit. I've been for my stroll. I'm getting younger. No, you're not, you fool. Look at the time. The time is laughing at us so much. Time is laughing at us. There's people from Darfield passing over us in aeroplanes to check who we are. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this just was a joke out of that phrase, time passes. I just love the phrase, time passes. Time passes, time passes, it passes, it scores. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at my own gags, but I'm sure somebody's done that one before, but I just like the idea of time passing. Time's passing, oh, it's scored. Because again, the whole sequence really is about time beating us, doesn't it? it be time beats us, they talk about beating time. Not really. No chance. I'll just put my keys, my keys of time. Do you want to go this way? <laughs> yeah, why not? When I was reading, um, well, I've been reading various poems of yours and books of yours. Mm. You know that sense of anxiety that you get when you think something really awful, mm -hmm. miserable is going to happen in a book? Yeah. There's a sort of dread. And I realised, actually, that even though you were building many times to potential catastrophe, mm -hmm. the cat catastrophe never happens. Like no. when, after lockdown, you finally get to take your mother-in-law to her oh, caravan yeah, in Cleethorpe, and she forgets the pie. And for a minute, I was thinking... I can't bear the fact that all that waiting, the agonising, is sort of built into the pie, which is going to be this moment of celebration in the caravan, and you've left it behind. But then I realised, before I even read the next sentence, 
that you don't do that. You've no. got a kind. There's an innate kindness to well, what always, you write, yeah. and you don't let us feel the bleakness ever. Well, my mother-in-law lives over there, and she's at a caravan now, and we drove down here to get on the uh, A1, and she said, "I've forgot. I've left the pie. I've left the pie." But luckily, we hadn't gone far, so we came back for the pie. And the pie, as I say in the book, just sat beside it. She makes the most wonderful pies. Yes, and I do try to be kind. You know, there's too much unkindness. There's too much. You know, when if you're at a writing workshop, I would never tell anybody that their work wasn't good. You can always say to people, "Why don't you try doing that with that line? Why don't you do that?" But these people have got their hearts in their mouths. They, I like working with people who haven't written much before, and they're expecting criticism. And you say, "No, keep writing." You know. The, Dylan Thomas always said, there is room on the mount, <laughs> carry on, you know, that kind of thing, yeah, I do try, and I'm an eternal optimist, you know, your optimism gets tested every blooming day, but I think if you're not an optimist, then you may as well be a grapefruit or something, you may as well just be some kind of non-sentient being. I know that pessimists are pessimists because they're never disappointed, and optimists are always disappointed. I'm a Barnsley fan, season ticket. Relegated last season, one of the worst seasons we've ever had. But then, as soon as the season ended, you go, "Well, League One, we might win a few games." You know, and there's right. always the potential to go back up. There's always, yeah. That's the great thing about that's when when people tell me they don't like football, which is fair enough. I say, if you go to a film, you can often guess the end. If you go to a play, you can guess the end. You go to a football match, you've got no idea what's going to happen. The team that you should beat thrashes you. The team that you should win easily, beats you. The team that should really win you, you beat them. And, as you said, there's this, you take the long view. You think, all right, we're terrible now. In 10 years, we might be back up. The, the tree. Should we walk back it's towards off again. it? Oh, yes. Oh, I, mean, that tree. I think this tree. might be some kind of ghost of Elliot. He's, he's saying, well, listen, it's going, it's getting. Wow, I bet this has never happened before. <laughs> eh? This grave always used to scare me as a kid. Because it's, it's sandstone, it's got a hole in it. And you always used to think there'd be some kind of gnarled <laughs> hand would appear. You don't walk past it. No. Now, so we are now approaching, and the, the wind's getting up a bit. Oh, Charlie, so. There's potential. So it's this branch here, and it just did a mighty crack. I think somehow it can, it can stand our weight. But when that fella came a few hundred yards away with his dog, their six legs and their combined weight meant that it's starting so to go. ripple. Because the underneath is very unstable ground because it is built on top of coal mining. And graves. And graves, so I mean it's doubly unstable. Let's dare to walk closer. <laughs> God. We've barely walked any distance at all because we keep turning back to the reality TV that is the endlessly cracking branch. Ian describes himself as a relentless popularizer. He's not averse to playing stranger on the shore through the nozzle of a plastic watering can if it'll get a laugh. But he can also make language bend and shimmer in places it never thought it could. Language is endlessly, endlessly exciting. You know, and that's why I get a bit cross with the grammar police, you know, the self-appointed. But here we come, here we come riding over the hill <laughs> to save grammar. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of... Uh, Tony Harrison, and in his poem he talks about the thing that happens a lot to people like who talk like me, that in Shakespeare we're the ones that are given the comedy parts. You know, you, you say these funny things in your North Country accent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it happens a lot. I, but I do, I glory in the wonderful accents. I, it's a shame that Toys R Us is shut 
because I was once lost in West Bromwich and I said to this fella, Oh, uh, another crack. I said to this fella, <laughs> which way is the station? And he said, you turn left at Toys Yam Wee. Yam Wee? Toys Yam Wee, that's great, isn't it? Because they call them Yam Yams, don't they? So you, because if you're from West Brom, somebody from Wolverhampton who sees himself as some kind of big city sophisticate, calls them Yam Yams. Because they go, we, I, I, we Yam, We Yam. Because of course, round here, <laughs> the big linguistic difference is from here to Sheffield, which is about 15 miles that way, where they have the hard D. So we all say the, they all go D. Nadin, Nadin D. And the wi a wide A. No, Nadin, Nadin. I don't go in a party car in car park. And I made a programme for Radio 4 about it years ago because if you go down the A61 from Barnsley to Sheffield, you pass what linguists call an isogloss, where language changes in a small link, uh, geographical space. So here we're going the, the, the. You go down the A61, the, 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 and it gets harder. By the time you get to Hillsborough, nadi, nadi, nadi. And the, the other thing, that the other isogloss that I love is what I call the house-ass interface, which, uh, again, I'm, this radio programme was about that because my auntie Mabel from Chesterfield had that wonderful Chesterfield accent where they call their house their ass. I've got double glazing in my ass. I've got a detached ass. And in Sheffield, they call it their house. So there is a house-ass interface. Now, I, I remember going with a linguist from Sheffield University trying to find, and we read this fantastic thing where we were interviewing people in Chesterfield, saying, we're looking for people with a, a proper Chesterfield accent. They go, oh, don't take, don't take them round here, duck. Can't find none of them. You'll not find them round here. I saw it, it sounds to me like you're talking Chesterfield. No, no, duck, you want to go down? No, no Whittington. No, go to New Whittington. So you go to New Whittington, and they talk, ah, no, no, duck, no, no. You want, you want to go to Poolsbrook? You want to go to Poolsbrook? And they all, oh dear. And Poolsbrook was where my auntie Mabel lived in this cannon, in absolute poverty. Her husband worked down the pit and got injured. And they lived in absolute poverty. And they all, our Harry, who recently died, who went to his funeral, had a great Chesterfield accent. And you go back there now, and even more changes happened than has happened here. The, more or less, the whole village has been flattened, and it's now a country park. It's, you know, they, they often have these things you have around here where you've got like a pit wheel to show you what was here before. Because, you know, my, my kids who are in the 30s, late 30s, can vaguely remember their granddad, my father-in-law, worked down the pit. Uh, they could remember vaguely the pit strikes, that was a big thing. But then, you know, my grandkids got no idea, it's ancient history to them. We tear ourselves away from the branch that cracks for England and walk towards what might or might not be the site of a Roman villa. Very slippery, so be careful. I suppose that would add to the comedy, though. It would I add to mind. the comedy. These stairs that are awkward, you know what I mean? They're not... They're, well, they're not the right length right for right a leg, anybody. are they? They're, Don't you think Yorks people have extra thick calves or something? Yeah, well, a lot of them in West Yorks, particularly, where they have to walk up and down hills. If somewhere like Ebden Bridge or Eptonstall, yeah, they're all stout-thewed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So this is... Uh, this has recently been done up. So you've got the River Dern here, uh, which, it, which leads into the Don. So we are in the Dern Valley. We'll sit on this bench, shall we? I'll read another poem, shall I? Oh, yes, please. Uh, which one I'll read? Which one? Oh, the, uh, the title poem. So this is a poem called To Fold the Evening Star, January 1965. Um, I would have been nine, and it's about me going to Mr. Kendall's shop to get something. My mum sent me 
to get something from Mr. Kendall's shop. And all the, the buses going past with all the blokes from Darfield Main Pit who've just been on afters. Street corner shop lit by the glow of an overhead light that could be left over from an idea someone had yesterday. Or so I thought, fair-haired angel of the evening. Mr. Kendall's glasses lit by the hope that the bus from Darfield Main Pit would give him a gaggle of blokes who would all want to buy matches. Or so he said, speaking silence with his glimmering eyes. Coins in my hand held in the heat of my ten-year-old mind. I asked for a star in a voice that cracks and breaks with fear. Or so I felt, washing the dusk with silver. Not a mirror, young man, he asks, making a joke as old as the moon. The bus slows by the shop, stops, wheezes, or so it seemed. It shut its sweet eyes with timely sleep. I fold up the star, holding it loose in my child's gentle grip. This star lasts longer, lights me way home. I saw a sang as the lion glared through the dun forest that clung to the path, lit by a paper folded in two. So it's kind of mysterious, that poem. It's just me going to the shop and the fella saying, I've gone for a star, which was the evening paper. Don't you want a mirror? Do you want a sun? You know, it's an old gag about the sun and the mirror and the star. And then at the end, just the, the lion glaring through the forest. I think it's a quotation from somewhere, but also it's like the fear of walking home at night from a shop, even though it's only around the corner and you've been sent by your mum. And these older men in the pit bus, this kind of mysterious thing, the pit. Uh, I remember I had this band called Oscar the Frog. I was the drummer. I used to drum on Tupperware, because I had no drums. And uh, with knitting needles, because I had no sticks. And a violin player, Steve Sutcliffe, we'd drop him off here at the roundabout, and he'd catch the bus back into Barnsley. And once, by mistake, he got on the pit bus with his violin. Here's the pit bus coming back from Alton, Maine. And he gets on the bus. It was a wonder. We, we're going, your bus is here, Steve. <laughs> and he gets on the bus. These men. And he got on the bus. And they went, and I just remember vividly, God, it's years ago. They went, he's here, Paganini. <laughs> Come on, Paganini, give us a tune. <laughs> and he to play. And he could play very well. God. And then he, and he, you know, they managed to let him off at the next stop rather than keeping him all the way to the pit. <laughs> oh, dear me. And you wonder, you know, if, if you've. If you haven't lived somewhere all your life, would you write this kind of poem? I think about people like Norman Nicholson, the great Cumbrian poet, who never actually moved out of the house he was born in. George Mackay Brown, who lived all his life in the Orkneys, you know, and, and I sometimes liked the idea of moving about. When I was younger, I thought, well, that's what I'll do, you know. But then, having lived somewhere all your life, you do get a sense of, you know, rootedness, but also your kind of, you have a license to comment on the changes that are happening. Whereas if I went to live somewhere else, it's like going on holiday, isn't it? You're, you're there on a visit. You said once that you couldn't be an anthropologist, though, here, because you've never gone and come back. Therefore, you can't do this kind of archaeological dig on yourself. But no, it seems like you're doing that all the time anyway, I am. It's, it's just that idea of not wanting to go away and kind of other these people, you know, because these these fascinating, interesting people that I'm surrounded by, that I know, and that know me mum and knew me dad and, and know me wife's family. You know, she couldn't be, couldn't be kind of anthropologically examining them under some kind of microscope. And in the end, you end up examining yourself, I suppose, you know, thinking, 
<clears throat> what am I what am I doing here? What um because you could I could do my job from anywhere. As you know, you can you can do it anywhere you like. You know, I don't drive, so we got good bus and train connections. So that's alright. Uh, you know, I get the first bus, there's an early bus to Doncaster at twenty past five. There are fewer buses than there were, that's a fact. But and I do end up walking to bus stops. So that's a convoluted way of saying that it feels like I can go anywhere from here, but I may as well stay here, as it were. Interesting how you write about yourself. Again, I think this goes back to your that kind of well of kindness in you, that sort of conviviality that you mm. have. Because I think you noticed once, didn't you, when you were reading some of your son's poetry, your son Andrew, who yes. is a great poet, yeah, prize-winning yeah. poet, yeah. and he's writing his first novel, I think. Yes, he he's is. He's just got a contract. For yeah, he's got a contract. It's coming out in 2024. He showed it me, and I said, he said, do you want to read this? And I went, yeah, I do, but... My wife read it, she went, it's really good. And then it's sitting there on this stool and I'm going, I'm going to have to read that, but what if it's not very good? I know he's a great poet, but what if he's not a good prose writer? Because they're different skills. My heart was in my mouth, but then I read it and it was good, thank goodness. <laughs> so, but he's much more visceral in his Oh, well, he writes poetry, a lot about, yeah, he, he is. I mean, he, he writes about himself in a very different way yeah, than does. the way you write about yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he writes about the young urban gay experience. Uh, and, and things, his new book, his latest book, Pandemonium, was about his partner's mental health problems. Again, he's done that a lot, and he wrote a, an amazing sequence about my daughter, who had a stillbirth three years ago, and wrote this amazing, touching sequence for poor old George, who didn't last any time at all. And, he, and you know, and he says, what he says is, I will always ask people, you know, he, he showed his partner all the poems he'd written about his mental health issues, and Ben went, well, it's only poetry, nobody reads it. <laughs> so that was all right. And, and he showed Kate, my daughter, the poems about George, and that was all right. So, yeah, he does. He's, he's much more visceral. And I think partly that's because he didn't want to be like me. Because you didn't want people to think he's only got the gig because of me. You know, he and, and so it's very, very different. And he, no, it's, I'm, I'm really proud of him. All three of them. You know, I always, I've got three kids, two girls and a boy. We still call them the kids. In the thirties, uh, I said that to my wife the other day. We still call them the kids. Um, we're climbing up these steps again. That are the weirdest steps because they don't fit your legs. What you like is some steps where you can actually walk up, but now I have to go hoppity click, as my dad would say. <laughs> I'm having to do one and a half steps one and a half per steps. step. That's so, ridiculous. I think this must be the Romans. But I am developing Yorkshire calves. Well, that's it. Yeah, we'll have. We'll I'm have. going to go back to Oxford with we'll a new set of legs. Calves like gar, as my dad used to say, <laughs> referencing the old dairy mirror strip. <laughs> if we walk back towards the branch. And then maybe you could read that the bit, bit yeah, about yeah. butter. Butter, yeah. I don't know what, what and the other bit that I just literally just dissolved was the nasty pasty. Oh, the nasty pasty, yeah. <laughs> well, was, I mean, it was funny because the kind of genesis of the book was I'd, when I wrote Neither Note Nor Summit, between you and me, it nearly killed me. I thought, I'd, God, writing a long book, you know what it's like. You can, I can write little bits, I can write articles, I can write columns. I like writing columns. I do a column for the Yorkshire Post and a column for the Barnsley Chronicle, and a column for the Dalesman, and I love it. And they said, can you write a book about you in Yorkshire? This is neither note nor summit. And I went, all right, I will, I can't, because you go, you know it's like when you're freelance, you go, yes, yes, I'll do that. And then I said, right, no more books. 
no more books. And then Bloomsbury, publisher, rang me up and said, can you write as an introduction to somebody's book about the coast? 800 words. Oh, yeah, 800 words. That's my, I love it. So I wrote this 800 word thing. And they rang back and said, we like that. Do you think you could write a book about the coast? And I'm, and my wife could see me saying, trying to say the word no and yes at the same time. I'm going, <laughs> and I'm going, and then I said, look, I hope Steve here. I hope Steve, all right? I am. I'm just, be careful here, because this tree looks like it's going to collapse. It keeps making really loud, cracking noises. Well, I'm just making a podcast with my mate Charlie, and as we walk down... That's right. No, but you, no, you but, can stop. But we were, it were, we could hear it creaking. This branch here. It's Steve, the famous Yorkshire pudding champion chuckers walk on roll, which gives us another chance to stare at the champion tree branch cracker. Steve and the branch, two champions in one scene. I know some of them are rotting in here. Aye. But you'll be on it, Steve. Don't worry. I'll be in for Yorkshire pudding thing because I'm champion. Are you our champion? Yorkshire pudding chucking? You'll be there. See ya. We did a thing on Yorkshire Day uh, where we, we tried to start a new trend or a new legend where we said that in Darfur they used to throw Yorkshire puddings into a flat cap. <laughs> so, Steve, we, we, we couldn't use real Yorkshire puddings, we were too heavy, so we had to have Aunt Bessie's. So we had to give these Aunt Bessie's Yorkshire puddings, not real ones, and chuck them into a flat cap. And Steve had this, because they were very light, and GB News <laughs> And I said to him, do I have to talk to bloody GB? Anyway, GB News turned up. Young lad, he was only eight. He wasn't trying to put some kind of GB News tech on it. So we, so we put this flat cap out, and all the local councillors turned up, and the MP, and they're all chucking the thing. And Steve, straight in. Straight in the straight cap? Straight in the cap, three times. And, and, they're going, and the GB News were came to that again. Yeah, they did it again. People are going, it must have a weighted pudding. So then they're giving him these other... Then we, I said, we'll make us, we'll pretend we used to have a Darfield cake. We did the like acrostic, so it was like dates, almond, rhubarb. It was like a, a Darfield. And this woman called Rosina made this Darfield cake. It was really heavy. It was, but it was like just like a fruit loaf, really. But it was nice. So we're doing that again. So he's telling me that that was him telling me that we're going to be when we do it again. We'll be doing. It. Anyway, I'll read this bit. But just before you do, yes. Just before you do, what? What was that bit in one of your books where you're with a friend, and I can't remember how this even came about, but you you end up varnishing some Yorkshire puddings with yacht varnish. Oh, that's right, that was... So you could float it in the bath? Yeah, that's... Um, he's a guy called Simon Thackeray, and he runs a venue in North Yorkshire, not far from Moulton, called The Shed, which is just a little village hall. And he's a sculptor, and he keeps having these amazing ideas. And he said, look... I went to his house, he said, look, and he got this Barbie doll and a, a little Yorkshire pudding that he'd varnished with yacht varnish and he put it in a bath and he, t- he turned this uh, mo- outboard motor on and it floated up and down the bath and he said we're going to do the great Yorkshire pudding boat race and we're going to make full size Yorkshire puddings like, they were like coracles and, they, and he got chicken wire and yacht varnish painted them and these young people rode around this pond, Bob's Pond in Broby and we had to have the Molten Subaqua group there for health and safety in case they fell out. But the thing was, the pond was only about two feet deep. So the <laughs> subacquid club, he was like Salvador Dali when he went to that surrealist exhibition in 1936. <laughs> so he stood there like that. And, and he, he was a kind of genius for publicity, that guy. So he, he also had this great idea, because he, he, he got sponsored by Sirdar Knitting Wools. 
to knit some Elvis wigs. And we said, let's do a thing where we pretend that Elvis came from Moulton and went to school in Pickering. So we did, so we had this bus trip. Because we discovered that any Elvis song could be sung to the tune of Ilkley Moor Bartat. So we had these uh, song sheets printed. And we, well, bless me soul, what's wrong with me? Wrong with me? <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and it was great, we did two of these, Yorkshire, uh, these Elvis tours. And the first tour was great because people got the gag. So we drove to places. I said, right, this is where Elvis went to school. We get out, we have a look, and this is uh, Elvis used to live here. Then we sing, uh, I am caught in a trap, in a trap, and all that kind of thing. But then the second busload, a woman who'd, who knew what we were doing, invited a load of her mates who didn't get it as a gag. So we get on the bus, and they wouldn't wear the Elvis wigs. We're all set with the Elvis wigs. They wouldn't pick up the song sheets. I said, right, we're going to uh, now tour around. We're going to go to uh, Pickering, where Elvis was born. This bloke went, he was from America. I'm going, no, and they just didn't get it. You're going, this is rubbish. And then I realised, you, you have to buy into these things. So yes, they, I'd, I'd like to do that again one day. For some reason, he had a, there's a blues singer called Billy Jenkins. One of his band turned up dressed as a giant bee. So for some reason, I can't, still can't fathom, we were followed round by this bloke dressed as a giant bee. Anyway, I better read this bit. The more I talk, the less likely it all becomes, doesn't it, Charlie? It all sounds like you just met me on the street and I'm just spouting absolute rubbish. So where, where is it, do you think? Um, I've marked it. Marked I've got, it. A little, like got a little barker. Mm. This is me on holiday with me, mum and dad, and uh, I'm going to have to wear some trunks. I'm going to put my trunks on, and it's, it's the problem of how you actually get your trunks on as a pre-adolescent boy. On this family holiday, one thing is occupying me above all others. Above my anxiety about finding new Biggles books in the WH Smith I visited last year in the same seaside resort. Above me hope that my dad won't snore with a sound like a giant cement mixer in a submarine. I'm worried about getting changed into my trunks to go for a paddle. I'm just about to ascend the foothills of adolescence. I'm becoming aware of my body. I see it as a butter sculpture created by a first timer at a butter sculpture evening class in a dusty community centre. As my mother explains it, there are two trunk options. I can put my trunks on in the guest house room before we go down to the beach, or I can put them on under a towel when we get to the beach. My mother was always a great explainer, turning everything into a story you could learn from. As she pointed out, there were advantages and disadvantages to each approach. Trunks on in the room was probably easier, but it meant you had to walk back with wet trunks on. Trunks on on the beach Mate, you were always at the mercy of a sea breeze lifting the towel, Marilyn Monroe style, just as you were pantless and just as the Chester WI annual trip was trooping by discussing jam. We might need bigger jars, one of them might be heard to say. <laughs> I made that bit up about the jars. But... <sighs> that, that was the bit that I was reading and Good, my daughter could hear yeah, me on, the, on yeah. the other side of the wall. It's just putting her head round the door saying, whatever's the matter? Well, what I did, before we started talking to Steve, they rang me up and said, can you write this book about the course? Because we liked that little introduction you did. I said, well, I promised myself I won't write any more books. I said, how long do you want it to be? They went 50,000 words. And I went, how about if I wrote 50 1,000 word bits? How's that? They went, all right, let's do that. This is like the middle, late 2019. I said, all right. Here's the plan. I'll go and do a gig. When I do a gig in a village hall, I'll stay over and I'll go to the nearest bit of coast. And then as I talk about in the book, he said, that's a great idea. 
then the pandemic happened, the lockdown happened, so you couldn't go to the coast. And if I had gone to the coast, it would have been weird. There'd be nobody there. The ones who were there would have masks on. So it'd be a totally different thing, and the book would be about that pandemic. So I said, look, can I just start writing a few memories about the coast? And they went, yes. So that's what I did. So every day I would stump up the stairs to my little bedroom and start writing. And what the great thing was, as you know, Leo, that memory has got hooks in it. So you'll write a memory about changing your trunks, and then that'll hook in a memory about my dad and my Uncle Jack carrying this old lady down a hill in Wales because she'd fallen down on this chapel trip. And each memory hooked in another one. And that's the great thing about memory. You know, as soon as you start thinking about it, it hooks in others. And as I've confessed before, some of the things in here are made up. Each story is more or less true, but then occasionally you will just put a bit in just because it's took you as a good image or just to make you laugh or just to lighten the mood. But most of it's true, most of it. <laughs> this is great, I'm enjoying this. I do like rattling. As my wife says, she, I'm going to get me a badge that says, we'll spout bollocks for cash. I know it's not for cash, but we'll spout bollocks. Ian describes the glory of his Yorkshire vernacular as the living embodiment of stuffing mufflers with half-eaten chip sandwiches in heavy woollen gobs. There'll be more about chips in a moment, but first there's tea. I brought tea with me, knowing how much Ian loves it. <laughs> so it's um, PG tips. Fine. So I've even researched what tea you like. Little Assam. Little Assam. <laughs> People always assume it's going to be Yorkshire tea, but I find it a bit strong, Yorkshire tea. Oh, I think this is quite... Well, I'll give you lots of milk. No, I have it black. Oh, gosh, well, it is really strong. That's fine. Well, lucky I didn't add the milk. I brought a second flask for no, that. I, see, I, I, I was trying to be a bit black. posh. It's partly because I think if you talk a lot, then it... Uh, clogs up your clack, as actors say. <laughs> you know, you can't have cheese, you can't have chocolate, you can't have anything like that. Like I'm sure that Every morning, Ian writes a kind of Twitter love poem to his first cup of tea of the day. Ian McMillan really does make people feel better. There's deep emotion behind the hilarity, and he confesses that he cries a lot. But his valiant optimism should be available on the NHS, along with his poetry and a strong cup of tea. I brought tea because it seemed to me with your morning ritual of the mm -hmm. walk, yeah. and then there's a kind of always a love poem yeah, to the I'll, first I'll cup of tea. I do a first cup of tea to eat, yeah. I like this morning's one. I can't remember what it was. But I always forget them as soon as I've done them. I always forget them. It was something about... Oh, oh that's what I was... First cup of tea, that, uh, sipping the, the dark, fantastic. Yeah, that, that came it. to me in the shower. <laughs> I thought, oh, there you go. Right, now that's, I think <clears> that's the milk, that one. Hang on a minute. I think that's the tea. Yeah, so it's going to be, it's going to be a hearty brew, I think. Good. Here we are, then. Nice cup of tea. It's like a cup of tea on a radio play. <laughs> cup of tea? Pour, glug, glug, glug. <laughs> I've tried to make it... As noisy a pour oh, right. as I could. So mm. it's not little Assam. No, it's a nice cup Will of tea. It do? Right? Yeah, it's nice. Black tea is so nice. People, people look at you strange when you have a black cup of tea. One of my followers on Twitter says, "I can't be a Yorkshireman if I don't have milk in my tea." But I've always, I came to tea quite late as a kid. I didn't drink it. But then when you grow up, you think, "Well, I can't, I can't sit and have a cup of water." So <laughs> then I also allow myself one espresso a day if I'm out and about. You seem to be quite. Um 
good at restricting yourself. I saw you allow yourself one tube of Pringles a year. Yeah, one I tube saw. of Pringles a year. A yeah. year. I could eat one an hour. <laughs> I could just be. I love Pringles. I've lost quite a lot of weight in the last few years, and it's mainly because of the walking. Then I thought, if I give up Pringles, if I don't drink much beer, if I can give up bread, then it helps, you know. So but but say, you don't give up chips. There's an awful lot of chip well, eating in your work. There is, there is a lot of chip eating. I, I do like chips, that's a fact. You can, if you have chips, bread, Pringles and beer, that's bad. <laughs> you just have chips, that's good. So just, just in case I ever go to Cleethorpes, yes. how do I order two lots of fish and chips in Cleethorpes? I would, say, right? I would say twice. That's it? That's all you have to say. You're that's going economical, go, isn't it? Twice, please. That's more of a South Yorkshire thing in a way. We always go to the Ocean Fish Bar. We like the Ocean Fish Bar on the main street. You get shown to your seat by a lady who beckons you in. Three, come this way. And then we have pensioners specials. But if you go to a takeaway, you go twice. Twice wrapped up. Then as I say in the book, somebody shouts from that, can you put me a tail in? Which is a great phrase. What is that about? Just it's a fish literally tail. a tail? Yeah, a fish tail. People like a fish tail, I don't know why. What, extra texture, extra chewiness? It must be. The great thing about the Ocean Fish Bar is uh, you have scissors to cut your sashes open. I tweet about them. You, know, you, get your, you get your tartar sauce and your brown sauce and your red sauce and a pair of scissors. And I think that's class. That is posh, that, that is. is. lovely. Actually, I did love that bit in Now Summit, that you end up in a pub buying a pair of bacon scissors. Oh, bacon scissors, that was so weird. The fellow used to come round to the, the George Hotel down the, in the valley. He sold bacon scissors and something else. Pit socks. Pit socks and bacon scissors, that was it. You see, pit socks and bacon scissors. I remember buying it, I bought the bacon scissors for my wife, I wasn't impressed. What's really weird is that we used to have bacon scissors yeah. when I was little. A lot of people had bacon scissors, didn't they? Yeah, and it was just for cutting the rind off, and mm. that was the only job they That's ever right. did. And then, these days, I suppose, it'd be a kind of, you see it on a posh cookery programme, wouldn't you? It'd be a posh thing to have bacon scissors. I had to do an advert for Yorkshire Tea once. I had to write a poem for Yorkshire Tea, a radio advert. Like I said to them, I don't drink Yorkshire Tea, you know. They went, it's only an advert. <laughs> I said, are you going to pay me in Yorkshire Tea? But they didn't. Mind you, you like being paid in chutney, don't you? Oh, yeah. When I do WIs, I always get paid in chutney. I did one, I've stopped doing that kind of, I'm kind of semi-retired from gigs, but there was one that was booked before the lockdown uh, over in Campsell, a village up the A1. And I said... Two things, I want to be paid in Chutney and I'll have to have a lift there because it's impossible to get to by public transport, it's only about 10 miles. They said, oh, we'll, we'll get a lift. And they sent me a taxi, this taxi man came and it was fantastic. He said, I know this street, it's from Doncaster, the taxi fellow. He said, I know this street, I used to take a bloke up here years ago. He said, oh, he said, he used to do a lot on the radio. Poet, lived on the other side of the road. So he lived at this side of the road. He went, I think he lived near here. I said, he lived in this house. He said, well, he lived with you. I said, I am him. <laughs> And he wouldn't have it. He said, I ain't sure. I said, I'm sure I am. He didn't I said, I know I am. And then it dawned on him, yeah, it's you. <laughs> then I did the, did the gig for the WI and they said, we've got the chutney for you. 17 jars. <laughs> it was like this treasure chest of chutney. All, all homemade chutney. Apart from one cheapskate. We've been to Morrison's. <laughs> and got some from Morrison's. But 17 jars. So I gave some to my sons-in-law. I've still got six jars at home. Yeah, yeah. And then... The bloke, the taxi man, he said, oh, my son's taking you back. Uh, he's a taxi driver as well, I just do a bit of part-time for him. So the son took me back and he went, my dad told me he used to take you home. I said, yeah, he did. He said, uh, I've not been doing this long. He said, I've only been taxi driving six months. I used to be a, a wrestler. So yeah, he said, I started off as a, a heel, but then I became a blue eye. 
because a heel is a bad guy, I didn't realize, but then a blue eye is a good guy. So if you start with it as a heel. So I thought, blimey, life's endless cavalcade. So I gave him a jar of chutney. <laughs> oh, dear me. <laughs> God.